IR political theorist who always told me, Dina, you're way too emotional with those books and those theories. And he was right. Sometimes I would like throw, throw this book. But this book I didn't want to throw, although it doesn't have any sources. Um, and at the end, when he's talking about the sources, he says, distance is for sure useful. But distance can also be the wrong feeling because it can mean no passion. Um, so welcome here today. This is a very passionate book. It doesn't have the sources, but at the same time then we feel very close um, to what you have written, at least I do. And um, I also wonder, like, and now we are going to elaborate later, how you don't get angry and sad writing this. Like, how were your feelings and so on. So um, you're going to start with some anecdotes. Um, so we are eager to listen. Yeah. Okay, first, uh, thanks a lot, Dinem. It's great to be here. It's a historical building. Um, it's the building of the, uh, you know, of the communist movement uh, in, the, uh, in the DDR, in fact. And uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. I hope the residue of some of those people rubs off on us today. Some of the mystica and magic. Uh, I want to just recognize some people. I want to recognize my friend Peter Mertens who is the chairman of the Belgian Workers' Party. It's great to have Peter here. Uh, so thanks for coming. Um, I want to recognize my comrade and friend, Ghassan. Uh, Ghassan Komiya is from the Moroccan uh, Workers' Democratic Way Party. It's great to have you here. I also want to recognize my friends and partners from EFDDR, um, whose materials you can see at the back. Um, it's an interesting project. Works. We work closely at Tricontinental with them. Part of the project seems to me is to recover the authentic history of German Marxism. It's funny, but German Marxism, at least the theoretical sector, often does a wide detour around the DDR. It's like they start obviously with Marx and then go somewhere to maybe Adorno, but then there's a wide detour around what's happening in at least a third of the German territory, where there were great Marxists from whom I learned personally, including Ernst Bloch, who I think is one of the shining lights of the Marxist tradition. So our friends at EFDDR, in a way, are bringing the train, driving that 325 kilometer fast train right through the history of German Marxism by bringing the DDR back into the conversation. And I think on the one hand, it's extremely brave to do that because after 1990, it was hard to have that conversation. But I also think it's accurate. It's inaccurate to cast out that tradition of thinking that took place um, in this city, in fact, um, a long time ago. So to EFDDR. You know, I'm too, yeah. I'm too radical leftist to be like calling people specifically. So um, now I want to say thank you to all of you for joining the fight um, because everybody's needed. Yes, I think that was the last thing I was going to say. Thanks for everybody for coming. Okay. <laughs> well, I want to tell you a little bit about this book because I wrote this book in two weeks. I'm not joking about that. 
Um, so I was planes, no sources. Yes, I was super angry when I wrote this book, like really angry. And I was really angry because this book was written in the weeks after the coup against Evo Morales in Bolivia. And what made me so angry were two things. The first thing was that there were actually people on the left saying it was not a coup and saying that Morales had been there too long. The first major indigenous head of state in the Americas was being told by white leftists, it's time for you to take a hike. Meanwhile, Angela Merkel had been chancellor for longer than Morales, but that was fine. You know, she could go on forever as far as, you know, the G7 was concerned, but Evo Morales had been there too long. A statement made by the US State Department. He has been there too long. Who is asking you? Like, isn't this the mandate of the Bolivian people? Like, who cares what the US State Department, that really angered me. I was really quite angry at that. That attitude of the left, forget the New York Times and the Washington Post and so on, the left was making those arguments. So that was one really like, I was, secondly, I was interested that a lot of young people online had simply no idea about the history of these coups and the overthrow of governments and, you know, the ceaseless punctual nature of the way in which the US government on behalf of its allies in Europe and Japan and so on overthrows governments. Like the history even of Guatemala or Iran, you know, and more recently 50th anniversary of the coup in Chile where I live in Santiago, completely obscured, you know, people have no clue about these things. And I was interested in that, wow, we've done a really bad job as you know, people of the left, communicators, intellectuals, whatever, done a really bad job of reminding generation after generation of some of these things. You know, there's a way in which you can write the same book for every generation, you know, and we must. We must write the same book for every generation. So in that sense, there's nothing original in this book. It's written just for this generation. It's merely a recitation of things pretty well known. So. I didn't have sources, not because of all of that, but because I didn't want the book to become expensive. That was the only reason. It's 100, we published it in India, 100 pages. It was sold for basically a price of a cup of coffee. And it sold a lot. And it's translated into a lot of languages because it's short. And therefore it's available. And also, I wanted to use this book to make a point. See, people say young people don't read. I completely disagree with that. Because young people are reading Facebook posts or Instagram posts or they're reading all kinds of things. So why can't the form of the social media engagement enter the book? So each section of this book is really short. And the idea was if you're on a train, you just read one section and put a bookmark and close it and forget. You don't have to read a whole chapter, you know, which is, requires a different kind of investment of time. So the book is written in these quite short as possible as I could for these stories, but with a narrative. Okay, let me tell you a story about the CIA, if you don't really, uh, just one story and then we'll chit chat. You know, the US ambassador was killed in Libya. You may remember this. Um, he was killed in Benghazi, in a very strange incident in Benghazi. So people were horrified, US ambassador has been killed. So I 
thought, wait a minute, a US ambassador was killed before and it's not discussed at all. And that was an ambassador who was killed in Afghanistan in 1978. His name was Adolf Spike Dubs. He was a Soviet specialist. Adolf Spike Dubs was sent by the US to Afghanistan because the US wanted to understand what was this government after the 1978 revolution, the SAR revolution, what are they? So they sent a Soviet specialist. Dubs sent a number of dispatches back to Washington saying, look, they are not actually puppets of the USSR. These are, and they are also completely going to fall apart by themselves because they are constantly fighting. Indeed, that was happening. There was even a shootout in the presidential palace. You know, Tariki and others were firing at each other. So he said it's not an issue. Suddenly, one day Dubs is going to the embassy and he's kidnapped by mysterious people, taken to a hotel in Kabul and he's held in this hotel room. There's an attempt by the government to rescue him and everybody's killed. Dubs is killed, the kidnappers are killed, everybody. The US government later says that the kidnappers were Shiite Maoists. And this Shiite Maoist group had kidnapped him. God knows what reason, there's no reason given. The files are basically all almost empty. And for years I've been trying to find, I wanted to write a book called The Murder of Adolf Doves and the Start of the War on Terror, something like that. Making the case that after Doves was killed, Brzezinski sent a lot of money to the Mujahideen, which Doves kept saying don't do. So I always thought the Yanks killed him, they did him in. Anyway. Um, but there was no evidence because the files were all empty. And I was asking around, I went to Belfast, met an agent of British intelligence, met lots of people. One day I got a call. I was in Beirut, in Lebanon. I got a call from this guy. He said, listen, can you meet me next week in Cambridge, Massachusetts at this hotel? And he told me his name and I couldn't believe it. I was like, there's no way this guy is calling me. So I was first a little scared. But then I thought, it's too good. So I went to Massachusetts, went that evening. He called me in the evening. He walked in in a big jacket. It was a warm day. I was like, what's he getting under the jacket? He came, sat down, he ordered tea. Super distinguished man, drank his tea, didn't take the big jacket off. He talked to me for several hours. Then he said, come back tomorrow. Again, several hours he talked to me. He was the CIA station chief in Paris. Very important man who before that was the CIA head for the whole of um, Central Asia. He was based in Tehran. Remember, this is before the revolution in Iran. His station was in Tehran. He was in charge of the whole thing. And this is what he told me. First thing he told me was, I heard that you've been asking about dubs. He said, don't ask about dubs anymore. <laughs> it will be bad for your health. Now, let me tell you my whole life story. And for two days, he told me all the operations they did, all kinds of things, it was super interesting. I've met tons of these people. One, when they retire, they want to tell you. There's something interesting about all these CIA agents. They've written so many memoirs where they come and they tell you, I did all this terrible stuff. And it gets reviewed, it gets read, but it makes no impact on the culture. The culture doesn't digest that this is some diabolical stuff. Like they go into countries and they destabilize governments that have been popular, have a popular mandate. And they did it in Europe. That's what I enjoyed most about what this guy told me a lot. 
He told me in detail about how the intelligence services just before the CIA started work in France and Italy right after World War II. And I didn't know this, you know, I'm not an expert in all this, but he told me how the Nazis were brought into German intelligence in the Bundesrepublic of in the Federal Republic. That the, almost the entire Galen network became the intelligence network. I didn't know this. I mean, I, I didn't know much about the European intelligence services, but I was agog, you know. How has this not impacted our culture? So I just wanted to tell this story to say that, you know, it doesn't matter whether people believe it or not, because most of the stuff is now publicly available at the CIA's own library. They just tell you, we did all this stuff. We destabilized the elections in Italy. We destabilized the election in France. This is right after the war. It's all available on their website. But it simply hasn't had an impact on the culture. And that's what really distresses me. That you can know things to be true, but it doesn't impact the culture. It's so interesting that till today, US interventions overseas don't delegitimize the people who organize them. Even today, well-meaning sensitive people will say things like, Saddam Hussein was a butcher. Now, he may very well have been a butcher. In fact, let's just for the hell of it say he was a butcher. But Saddam Hussein didn't kill millions of Iraqis. That was the US illegal war in 2000. Three, Madeleine Albright was the U.S. representative to the United Nations. She goes on a morning show, morning, oh no, sorry, 60 minutes, evening show on Sunday evening on CBS News in the U.S., a mainstream show. The reporter asks her a question. This is during the 1990s. She asks her on national television. She says, the U.N. has just released a report which says, as a consequence of U.S. sanctions, 500,000, half a million Iraqi children have died. It was a famous UNICEF report from the 1990s. Some of you may remember it. She asked the question, a very sincere question. The UN report says half a million Iraqi children have died as a result of U.S. sanctions. Madeleine Albright could have said three things that I can think of. There are three possible answers. Number one. We don't believe the report. It's wrong. It's filled with lies. It's Iraqi propaganda. She could have said that. She didn't say that. Second thing she could have said is, it's terrible that half a million children are killed, but they're not because of US sanctions, they're because of Saddam Hussein, the Iraqi regime, whatever. She didn't even say that. She said the third thing. She said the death of half a million children is a price worth paying. She actually says that on US national television. And yet, the culture doesn't delegitimize her. The US State Department has just named a Young Women Leaders International Award for Madeleine Albright. The culture simply doesn't delegitimize them. The barbarian is always going to be the Arab or the Asian or the It's always going to be over there. The West somehow, very cleverly, and this is part of the information warfare, I suppose, very cleverly, is able to have us know all this information. U.S. overthrew Mossadegh, 53. U.S. overthrew Arbenz, 54. U.S. invaded Dominican Republic, 65. U.S. overthrew um, Salvador Allende, 1973. U.S. overthrew, you know, Zalaya twice. Joe Matrend Aristide in Haiti, twice. He was good twice. World record. 
the only person could twice by the US, Joe Biden and Steve, Evo Morales, etc., etc., you know, Castillo in Peru, blah, 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 blah. But it doesn't impact the culture. And that bewilders me. So this book is not just written to inform people, oh, this school, this school, this school, this school. This book is actually asking the question, how come this doesn't affect the culture? How come it doesn't enter into that level, you know, the kind of subsoil level of thinking? I do actually uh, exactly how that pointed out. Um, you wrote at one point, the colonizer cannot be a terrorist ever, only the savage can be. And at the same time, um, a couple, like probably 20, 10, 20 pages earlier, you write about um, that the main contradiction is not between, um, in the Cold War, is not between East and West, but between North and South. Um, so now you ask, why is that? Why do we not care about those things? And you said you were very happy to hear that Italy and France also this happened. <laughs> um, and uh, like I will offer, like um, from from those two things you said, I would think we don't care about it because it's the other. It's not us, right? It's something until like January sixth. <laughs> something. Um, that has, and I'm definite that the CAA was on the other side <laughs> and not on the side of the rioters. Um, so I feel like it is not something that makes, I'm talking us, although I'm like both the other and the white person. Um, is it something that has to do with, like, it doesn't affect us, it's in a sense far away, although we have a globalized world and everything is close. Um, but we can we can like put it away. It's it's a it's a book of story tales. Uh, it doesn't if unless we are leftists here we are all leftists. So it makes us very angry. Like at least me, I got very angry and sad and all. I have all this feeling. And you said you're carrying anger in this. So do you think it's it's a main division between us and the other? Because I was teaching today a class mainly from the Global South and I was reminded of your book and I already like asked some questions about this and I felt that they're way more on the side that this makes them angry. Um, so is the reception, do you feel like the reception, and you said in India many people read it um, because they maybe identify as the other, that is a victim, do you think that, that could be the reason? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. I, I, I'll say this, that yes, it's correct. The anger is correct. The book is also filled with poetry um, because part of my feeling is that, you know, I've never liked the term survivor. You know how for sexual violence and so on, people talk about survivors. I, I don't like the term survivor because it defines you um, by the violence somebody else did to you. You know, that's not your integral part of your life. Uh, your dignity is not based on somebody else's brutality. You know, your dignity is, is your own and people should not be defined by somebody else's actions. Uh, they must be defined by their own light, you know. And it goes the same with countries. That in a sense, um, I think this feeling of not caring comes from a deep sense. I'm, I'm talking now about the Atlantic countries. It comes from a deep history. Um, of a sense of superiority. Uh, I think it's as simple as that, you know, that, um, you know, you can cavalierly say that somebody has been the president for too long, they can go, 
you know, cavalier. Um, you know, Evo Morales has been there too long. He should go. Uh, we don't need to consult the Bolivian people. You know, this is the 50th anniversary of the coup in Chile. Now, Chile is an interesting country. It's probably the most European of all uh, South American countries, you know, frankly. Um, Salvador Allende was a great aficionado of European culture, you know, personally. He's a super cultured man. If you go to his museum, it's amazing. I mean, you know, he was a, quite a man. Um, you should list, read the record which is available at the National Security Archive, which is a non-profit group in Washington. Just read how the U.S. administration talked about the Allende government. Um, it's extraordinary, you know, the way in which they felt entitled to say that because Allende was challenging U.S. multinational copper countries, companies, Allende simply didn't have the mandate to be the president. The mandate to be the president didn't come from the Chilean people. And I must say, Allende only won 34% of the vote to become president. It was a split mandate. Uh, but in the last congressional election before the coup, his group, uh, Unidad Popular, got 44% of the vote. So they increased the vote share. That's a considerable achievement. Um, but yet, his mandate comes through Washington. It's that attitude that I find stunning. I've been telling some people in a book I did earlier called The Border Nations, um, I wrote the history of the G7 in part of it. And I went to the Gerald Ford archive and looked at the transcript of the conversation of G7 leaders. I must say, Helmut Schmidt comes off really badly in that. Because Schmidt at one point, you know, the, the seven leaders are sitting there. There's the person taking notes, who actually takes verbatim notes. I'm not sure if there was a tape recorder, but it's pretty verbatim sounding notes. And Schmidt starts to talk about the textile industry in Germany. You know, they're talking about the Italian textile industry, which they say because it's high-end clothing, it'll survive the integration of the world economy. Mind you, this is 1974, the word globalization not being bandied about. Helmut Schmidt says, look, the leader of the textile workers union in Germany is a great friend of mine. That's how he starts this intervention. See the contempt they have for the people, not just the people of the south, but the people. Here's what he says. The textile industry union head is a great friend of mine, he says. And yet, that industry in Germany has to go. Then he says, of course the industry is competitive and could survive, but it still has to go. It's that contempt that these people have for the people, whether it's the people in Turkey or the people in Bolivia or even their own workers in their own countries. You know, people say, oh my God, that's a conspiracy theory. This was a conspiracy. Seven leaders of seven industrialized countries were sitting around in France in Rambouillet at a palace, you know, a palace of the, of the ancient regime, sitting around in this palace the British had used the bathroom as their office, big giant bathroom you can imagine in these palaces. And here they were talking about how their working classes are going to have to suffer because of the nature of integration. I mean, it's that contempt. So I actually don't think the other is always another country. It's their own working class as well. Um, you will be happy then that I teach, still teach Wallerstein world, world system theory. Um, which seems like to be very dusty, um, but it's still about center periphery, right? The, like the colonizers can only colonize because there's local elites that also see themselves as elites. Um, I was like, 
I was in Portugal, we were meeting um, different comrades from all over the world. And I was talking to the Angolian left leader. He was the president of Angolian Bloc, Democratic Bloc Party. And he was asking me to like, do some cooperation with Germany. And he was asking me, what do Germans know about Angola? And I was like, oh, and how can we do something? And I'm like, well, I'm afraid they might only know that this is in Africa. <laughs> and, then, um, and then I was like, but I don't think we can make them care. Like, they don't even, like, I, I honestly don't know how we can make people care. And then the other day, a couple of weeks ago, we went, I met uh, some leaders from Peru. And we were talking about cooperation again, and I was like trying to get it like, how can we make people to care um, and like see each other as people? And then fortunately, they found this um, horrible company that exploits labels there that is selling some um, raspberries here, um, so or, and blueberries. And I was like, oh, we can use this as angle. Maybe if we talk about the exploitation of those blueberry companies we can actually do get it to German news or something, like at least get it somewhere placed in the news. But when we do a solidarity declaration, nobody will care. Um, and I, I'm reminded, like now when I look about the observations and so on, I'm always reminded about Angela Merkel being listened in by the NSA and Germany not even caring about that. Um, so this is why actually this kind of left me hopeless and uh, I wonder, like, you are not that much older than me, but you're still, like, doing this a little bit longer, let's say a decade. Um, so, how do you keep going? Like, I, I understand here you channeled your anger in a book, but how, do, how, how, how should we keep hope? Look, I mean, let's, let's give some more examples first of the misery and then come back to that, because, uh, no, you know, I, I, the, you mentioned this thing about Angela Merkel and the spine, okay? I mean, I remember the debate in Germany about Huawei. This thing about Chinese may spy on you, but the Yanks already spied on you. And, but it's okay if the Yanks spy on you, because you have to worry about the yellow peril. You know, they may spy on you, must block them, but let the Yanks continue. It's not logical. The culture is not logical right now, in my opinion. I'll give you two quick examples of that and then I'll answer your question because it will lead to it. One is recently dear old George W. Bush gave a speech. I don't know if you watched the clip of it. It was quite hilarious. He first said, there must be no something about the illegal invasion of Iraq. <laughs> then he said, I mean Ukraine. And then he said, but Iraq also. <laughs> and then he said, that's the advantage of being in my 70s. <laughs> he just said the Iraq invasion is illegal, which he was the signer of on, and no impact on the culture. We just laughed and said, Bush is such an idiot, he's an old man, blah, blah, but no impact on the culture. That was an illegal invasion, and then US officials over the last two years have been saying there has not been an illegal invasion like Russia's entry into Ukraine since 1940 whatever, 39. And nobody says anything. The culture is silent. The US officials saying on television. I saw Susan Rice, ex-official, saying there's not been an invasion like this since the Second World War. And I was like, but you authorized the illegal invasion of Iraq. 
don't take my word on the illegal. That's from Kofi Annan. He said that to BBC in 2004, exactly a year after the war. He said it was an illegal invasion. But the culture doesn't react. I keep saying the culture and I'm going to come back to why. The, the, the other example of that is, is NATO. Uh, the complete benign NATO, you know, NATO is only for defensive. NATO destroyed Libya, completely wiped out of the historical imagination. Muammar Gaddafi was killed brutally in Syria, wiped out of the historical imagination. Libya is still destroyed. I first went to that country in 1974. I reported the war a little bit, not as much as I wanted to. I wrote a book about it called Libyan Win Arab, Arab Spring Libyan Winter. That war was nasty. And I, I'll never forget this. And that's why I want to give this example about the culture. Many of us wrote to NATO headquarters and asked, will you give permission? Will you give us the sighting map for your bombing? Where you had planned to bomb. So then we can see if you had planned to bomb this area and the bomb missed, you killed civilians. But you didn't intend to you know, target the civilian. Can you send us your sighting map? Peter Olson, who's the lead attorney at the time for NATO, wrote a public letter in response, including to Amnesty International. Um, Donatella was the investigator from Amnesty, an excellent investigator. Anyway, Peter Olson wrote a letter back which was released in the public domain, in which he said that NATO never conducts war crimes. Full stop. This is by definition. We cannot conduct war crimes. Others do, but we don't. Full stop. We don't need to be investigated. Even though NATO purportedly went to Libya on a UN mandate, UN Resolution 1973, if you read UN Resolution 1973, it says after the hostilities, there must be an after action review. That's what it says in the mandate. NATO refused. But it's a benign organization. Jens Rotenberg, such a clean guy, clean hands and so on. Everybody wants to join NATO. It's ridiculous. What's wrong with the culture? The culture simply doesn't absorb the facts. Why is that? Is it racism? Is it simply that? Like other people conduct war crimes, Europeans cannot. Is it simply racism? What is it? And I don't have an answer to that question, but I want to keep asking the question because I want you to answer the question for yourselves and for us. Like I want a public discussion on how is it that these facts are all known but it, they don't impact the culture. Do you understand what I'm constantly repeating? Like how is it it can't, it, there's got to be something blocking the actual absorption of these facts into a narrative. Something is blocking it. What is that? Is it merely racism? Is it the old habits of imperialism? What is preventing us from digesting it? So the reason I don't just go into desolation, although I am pretty depressive a lot, but the reason I don't go into desolation is I feel like this is the question I would like people to be asking. And I feel that this is the kind of conversation that should be asked. Like around the conflict in Ukraine, everybody suddenly becomes an expert on the conflict. You know, this town, that town, what's happening. People don't know anything. War zones don't know anything about anything. But everybody is suddenly an expert. You know, this is the aggressor, this is the this. The first question I'll ask you is, how do you ipso facto believe that NATO is an innocent party in this? How do you ipso facto believe that? Because guess what? People around the world don't accept that. That is the reason why even the right-wing government in India 
is not going along with the European and US storyline. The right-wing government, the right-wing government in India, the foreign minister, Jay Shankar, was asked about how India might be invited to join NATO plus. Okay, he was invited to NATO plus, that means the baby, you know, the children's table at the Christmas party. You can't come to NATO, you can come to NATO plus. Okay, that's what Macron wanted, BRICS plus. All the BRICS will sit and Macron will sit in the baby table. Not anymore, I don't think. But he was asked this question, his answer is interesting, it's mind you, it's a right-wing government in India. And he said, in India we don't accept the NATO template. That's a phrase he used, we don't accept the NATO template. So around the world, people are somehow, the cultures are beginning to size up to this. I met the people in South Africa. They are sizing up to this. They are like, no, look, guys, let's be frank, okay, we don't want to believe you anymore. We simply don't want to believe you anymore. Uh, Nanidhi Pandor, Foreign Minister of South Africa, sitting like you and I are sitting with Anthony Blinken. And she looks him directly in the eye and says, you can't bully us anymore. Wow. Wow. So, no point being angry. Some parts of the world are cluing into the culture. The culture is cluing in. But somehow here, I don't see it. I'm a little bit afraid it's going to be too late. I work on climate change mainly, yeah. so um, so I my answer would actually be um, if we stop believing the lies, we have to act. So I think there's like a huge we have huge uh, potential to cognitive dissonance. So um, I feel like this happy narrative of NATO not being able to do bad means also for us that we are excused not to do anything and that we are excused with our living standards that our living standards are just the way i live it's just my electric car my cell phone and everything um, i achieved this right i worked for it i paid for it and so on um, so i deserve this so once you get rid of this narrative and you talk about all those places in the world that have been um, subject to imperialism, which is basically almost all the places in the world, right? Um, we, we would have to also see ourselves maybe not as part of the perpetrators, but at least as part of the resistance. Because if you do recognize this is unjust, and you do recognize that we have a privileged voice here, like most of us are probably have some European citizenships, or we, are, we don't have to be afraid of going to prison maybe some climate activists by now they do, um, but typically we can say whatever we want um, and so on without anything and still we are not fighting, right? In the global south, uh, climate activists are die, dying on a daily basis, they're being killed by multinational corporations that have their seats here and all our uh, richness, all our comfort is built on the, on the exploitation of those resources, right? We also profit from multinational corporations. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't have this living style. So my answer would actually uh, would be that um, we're too comfortable. We don't want to lose the fairy tales we are living in, and admitting that that those crimes are done, even though they're done by like a capitalist class and not by the typical people, uh, we are still benefiting, and we would have to like fundamentally. Um, question our imperialist lifestyles, right? So I, I feel like 
that was the main problem. And when you say the global south is waking up, I hear that also about UN talks, right? The United Nations talks and so on. And then we can wonder why are the general secretaries always talking those beautiful words? I would say because they have no power, uh, so they get to so they get to give those like even not just the excellent. Sometimes they're even in charge, right? And um, say say something like really bold, where you're like, yes. <laughs> let's let's rally up behind this what you just said um so i feel like one part of it is that we have to give up our lifestyles and there's this part you're quoting somebody else um i think some african leader and it's talking about uh, that you have to be crazy to fight um you have to be crazy to be a socialist to be a leftist to fight the system so can you elaborate on um volta I was a, a student activist and something about him really dazzled me. Like, like I felt he was like the Che Guevara of my generation. You know, he was amazing. And then we heard, I mean, I was following the news from India and news we got from Africa, there were two or three sources. There was one guy who ran a magazine, African Affairs, but I never saw it at the time. I would just read the press. Sankara decided that why should my country be called Upper Volta? What a stupid name. Like it's a colonial name. So they changed the name to Burkina Faso, land of upright people. And I thought, wow, he's my hero, you know. And then they cooed him and killed him in 87. Uh, this guy spoke at the UN, amazing speeches about the environment. In Burkina Faso, he said, one day of the week, only one day, men will not do any housework. Uh, sorry, women will not do any housework. One day of the week, only men can do housework. He was thinking in very unique ways. Okay, now you'll say he was a military dictator. He's my kind of military dictator. <laughs> if he says something like that, that one day of the week, men will go in the kitchen, cook, do the laundry, all that. Can you imagine in the world I grew up in, if the government told that, my God, that government will be voted in by women forever. You know, because let's face it, guys, when we were young, we were all feminists. Moment we got older, the gender division of labor starts in our homes. I mean, it's extraordinary how this happens. But Sankara was aware, he said no. Then he talked about food sovereignty, we've got to grow our own food. If you don't, if you import food, he said you are in debt, you are in debt for life. I mean, he was extraordinary. They could have killed him, 1987. Only two years, 15 May 1987. Real black day for the life of the left in that period had a big impact on me, the killing of Sankara. You have to be crazy to be in the left. This is a fact. But let's go back to the Sahel region of Africa. What you said about people here having a lifestyle, you know, what you know, we used to call the perks of imperialism. You know, it's a little bit as if large sections of the North have become what Lenin called the labor aristocracy. You know, they basically bought into a kind of worldview impossible to break. Okay. In the last two years, there have been four coups in Mali too and in Burkina Faso too. Four coups by young military officers. The second coup in both countries, young military officers 
almost no ideology. They are young guys, they come from the military. They are not like Thomas. Thomas Sankara was a Marxist. He had read Marxism. He came as a Marxist into office. The coup was done by them very deliberately. These guys did the coup because they said the government is cracked. The previous coup government, there's a double coup in both countries, okay? The second government, young military officers, one of the first things they said is France, get out. You are colluding with Al-Qaeda, you are colluding with the Tuareg secessionists, get out. Burkina Faso, Mali, mind you, one third of the country is out of the control of the government. And that, that is a consequence directly of the NATO war in Libya. Direct consequence of that war. Nobody will answer for that, the way that war was conducted. Sarkozy is a criminal, you know, conducted that war. will never have to answer, why did you go ahead of the US and start bombing? You know, French bombed first. Why? What was Sarkozy? Later it came out that Gaddafi had funded Sarkozy's election campaign. You remember that? That story was on page 55 of, you know, Le Mans, not on the front page. But that has got to be in his mind somewhere. Because also remember Sarkozy backed Ben Ali in Tunisia right till the very end. He didn't want Ben Ali to go right till the very end. Anyway, but with Gaddafi, they sent the jets immediately, bombed him quickly. Anyway, so in Burkina Faso and in Mali, I've written a lot about, traveled in that region. There is this great feeling against the French. I remember being in Bamako and discussing with some people, not left people, mind you. These are just old state bureaucrats, been there for ages. Asking them, why is, what, what is this atmosphere against the French? You know? In fact, things were so bizarre that last year, there was a demonstration in Bamako where middle-class looking people were carrying Russian flags. It was puzzling. I was puzzled. What is going on? And they said, you know, it's very interesting that you ask this question because he said, we are puzzled about another issue. The Western media, including the French 24 and so on, keep talking about the Chinese colonization of Africa. Okay. There's a lot of news reporting coming into Africa of the Chinese coming in. The Chinese, by the way, have no military bases in Africa. Only one military base in Djibouti, a naval base, which is used as part of the UN piracy mission. But they don't have a military base. And he said, you need to go, this one guy told me, you need to go again to Niger. Because you got to see in Niger, okay? So I had never been in that depth into Niger. I'd been to Sabah, Libya and so on. Anyway, went to Agadez in Niger. Agadez Niger is interesting, okay? Because the Yanks keep saying, you know, be careful of these other people doing this and that in Africa. In Agadez, there is a drone base, the US drone base, which is the largest drone base in the world. It is enormous, Go, goes on for miles. It's huge. All these signs, don't come near, don't come near, whatever. That's not the real thing. Got in a car, went northeast of Agadez to a town called Arlit. Now, those who are veterans of the fight against the Iraq war will remember yellow cake Niger from, yellow cake uranium, from Niger. You may remember that an accusation was made that Saddam Hussein was getting yellow cake uranium from Niger. A US State Department official went to investigate. He wrote a report saying this is not true. And then the Bush administration leaked that his wife, Valerie Plain, was a CIA agent. You may remember the story. Some of you, some far distant recesses, some details may be coming back. Anyway, yellow cake Niger, uranium in Niger. So, went to Arlit. You enter Arlit, there's a big sign, welcome to Arlit, but it's in French. You go in, it's completely garrisoned by the French military. 
It's like the French Foreign Legion friends. It's at the edge of the Sahara, super dusty area, that's Northern Sahel belt, super dusty area. The French are all over the place in this town. Why? Because one in three light bulbs in France is powered by that town. One in three light bulbs in France is powered by the uranium from Arlit. That one town in Niger completely garrisoned by the French military. Now, what you said is true. If France is thrown out of Niger and Niger has the right to sell uranium to whoever, which they don't have, it's a captive market, it's a French company based on top of that mine. If they are removed and the Nigerian people get a better deal, the lights will go out in France. And you can see already there's anger in France, there's anger of the French people being mistreated. Imagine if the perquisites of French imperialism were denied further. One in three light bulbs, that's not a joke guys. That's not like 10% of the electricity, that's one third of the electricity comes from this one town in Niger, a town nobody knows about. Nobody seems to care, and that's the key. I'll tell you a quick story. I was at the COP meeting in Glasgow. Yeah, so I had gone, remember you had to go to Glasgow airport to get a COVID test. I took a train from here. Okay, no, but I wasn't flying. I, I had to just go to get the test there. That was the main test. It was in front of me were about seven or eight US-based oil executives. But they were not all US people. There was an Indian guy there also. Anyway, I was in the queue behind them. And they were all talking and they were in the suits. And I was also in a suit, but with my cop thing. Francisca was in Glasgow with me at that time. One of the guys, huh? Yeah, one of the guys turned to me and he said, what are you doing here? So I started telling him about a story from Cabo Delgado, Mozambique, about you know natural gas find, French Total, about uh, Exxon Mobil. The people were protesting because they were not getting a deal. Then they called themselves Al Shabab, which is like a bad branding idea. Don't use an Arabic name for your organization. <laughs> call your organization the Youth Committee for the Future. Don't it call have Freedom and something. Yeah, Freedom Committee of Mozambique, not Al Shabab, which just means the youth, you know. And then these idiots went and called themselves ISIS of Mozambique. But there was no ISIS there. I can inform you that these were ex-police officers, who many of the fighters in that thing. There was no real shake or anything. They just were not well trained in the proper way of doing struggle. Uh, political education was low in that region. Anyway, so I mentioned all this and one of the guys, very sincere, very nice guys, they asked questions. One of the guys turned to me and said, you know, every, he said, firstly, it's very interesting, you know, blah, blah, blah. Then he said to me, everything you say is true. He said, I, I take your word for it. You look like a sincere person. Everything you say is true, but nobody cares. So I went back into the hall. And I exploded in the thing and that bloody video, seven minutes long, watched now 400 million people. Why? Because I was angry. And I am generally never angry. But I can tell you, when the guy said, even if they know, they won't care, that tells you so much about the culture we live in. You know, that he could say exactly what we've been talking about. You know, we know that the US did this, that and the other, but nobody cares. That is a remark about the culture, not a remark about knowledge or whatever. Um, I actually, I'm a fan of anger. 
I feel like I'm going, that's why I'm coming to the distance thing, right? I feel like these are things we should be genuinely angry about. Yeah. Um, and you just said you're almost never angry, yet yeah. you already said that you wrote this book in but, anger. But right? I don't lose my temper. Um, that's what I mean. I don't so lose my temper. That is, uh, there's this German songwriter. Her name is Bettina Wegner, and she is, uh, she's talking about uh, sadness, actually. And there's a song called I'm Sad Anyway. Um, I think it's from the 80s, uh, something like that, early 80s. Uh, and she says, uh, I'm sad, it's okay, the division of labor, other songwriters do something else. Um, but I'm sad anyway, and that's okay, because if enough people are sad, we can be angry together and change something. Mm. Um, so I feel this is a very Western idea of that anger is something bad. Right? And also like that I would come back to this idea about savages, right? Those angry savages. Mm. Like uh, as soon as somebody's angry, angry, like you're angry. Uh, don't talk to me like this. That already like is used as a delegitimization, right? We already use this against somebody, even if they're just to be angry. We we turn it like, oh be more reasonable headed, be more rational, and I'm kind of blaming enlightenment um, on that. I never liked uh, the whole enlightenment philosophy, um, because it's like right, they're saying reason is on one side and emotion is on the other side. So the savages have emotions, they are unreasonable, but while we are the clear-headed ones with logic. Um, and you said ISIS, and this reminded me of something, and I'm going back also to the question of sources. Uh, I had this recent uh, interview with Der Spiegel, with somebody from Der Spiegel, and uh, it was about Erdogan and Putin. So I said, for me, Erdogan and Putin, no difference except one is in NATO and the other one is not. And then I was talking about that there's lots of sources that show that Erdogan supported ISIS, right? And then we had this interview and later he called me back and was like, you know, we can't say this Erdogan supporting ISIS thing, the fact checkers said you can't say it. Um, <laughs> so they weren't going to print it. And I'm like, but I insist that this is the case. I'm a politician, I'm as a politician, not as a political scientist, so why don't I get to say what I want, right? Um, and then I think it got beaten a little bit, it got printed, um, so I got, I got, I like insisted on it. I had this before, I was insulting Erdogan, I wrote um, something like fuck my Erdogan, which is not my most brilliant tweet, but yet I got this court uh, document that told Twitter to delete this tweet. So I got this message by Twitter, please delete the street, otherwise we have problems with this Istanbul court. Um, it was a long court document with other people's streets, so I started following everybody else, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a virtual putting people in exile together um, thing, because they documented all those streets from the Istanbul court. The plaintiff was Erdogan versus all of us, I guess. So I wrote back to Twitter, no, I'm not going to delete it because I'm in this position, I'm in Germany and so on, I can say, I can use my privilege and say this. Um, so uh, I, I stuck with the same with Der Spiegel, also, as I said, it got weakened, um, but then my friends in Turkey were like very happy about this. Like, I called I called Erdogan Putin, right, and that was a headline. Uh, so they were very happy with me and they were like, oh, for sure, if not the Sultan, the Ministry of Communication saw this. Um, and you're talking about those like lists, right? There's like some point um, where you're talking about different lists, government, or the CIA prepares of who we should get rid of. Um, I assume you are on such a list. 
Um, I haven't been in Turkey actually for six or seven years because I, I, I keep poking the Sultan. I can't help it. Um, so do you like do you want to give us any advice how we should best all get on those lists so the lists get too long so they can't keep like I, I feel like this is the thing, right? Um, during 2013, Erdogan started to put up denunciation boxes, okay, for people to denounce their neighbors. It was, we were not allowed to make noise anymore and so on, and for slogans and so on. So he put up boxes in front of the police office, and you're going to remember the word, because the word for denunciation in Turkish is IBA, you know, like IBA, like something in German child would say that's not tasty, right? IBA so like the IBA box. Um, and then people weren't putting too much in it. And we weren't putting stuff for fun. Like we would like mm. try like to put like to overflow those things. So do you think we should all try to get on those lists so they, they can't even cope anymore? We should all like do something for those, all those secret agencies to be like, oh wait, we have to write this person down and this and this, uh, which is like a breakfast club or something where everybody gets up? They remember correctly. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's funny that we call this Russian roulette. You know, the game with the gun where you spin the hand because it's played with a Colt 45, <laughs> which is made in Springfield, Massachusetts, uh, and not in in Russia. But anyway, uh, I don't know where the phrase comes from. Um, unfortunately, I think playing a game like that with Western intelligence is dangerous because the roulette wheel stops and somebody will get taken down. Uh, just look at this idea that we have of, you know, um, in the West, the state operates without anger. It's interesting because, in fact, they have a different way. They sublimate their anger into weapons. Um, you don't need to stand there and yell. You just press a button and they die. I mean, when the New York Times actually broke the story of the kill list, that was really monumental because here's Obama, constitutional lawyer, supposed to be this cool president of the United States, on Thursday morning would sit in the Oval Office with the national security team and they'd have lists of names and he would pick, they would recommend, we need this week authorization to kill the following 15 people in the world and he would sign the kill list. And in that kill list were US citizens, including Anwar al-Awlaki, who was a US citizen. Uh, his 16-year-old son was killed. Obama signed off on the execution of a 16-year-old boy who was sitting in Yemen at a sidewalk uh, restaurant eating with his family and they targeted a 16-year-old US citizen and killed him. Why? Because his father was the great Anwar al-Alaki who was a preacher in California before he moved to Yemen. He was radicalized in the United States. So here's Obama whose reputation has not been damaged at all. Talk about the culture. Complete zero reputation damage. Who is sitting in his office every Thursday, signing off on the execution of people in Waziristan, in Yemen, in Somalia. You know, it's... I, I don't even know how to... Like, how does one... You know, how do you know this and then not feel like, what's going on in the world? And Obama today has high popularity around the world. High popularity. You know, that's extraordinary to me. So, so people will say, you know, Xi Jinping of China is a dictator. You know, so they'll say he's a dictator. But I don't know 
how you can square the circle when you have somebody sitting there in an office and deciding who to execute. What word to use for that? You know, democratically elected executioner without a judicial mandate. I mean, you know, what the hell, man? We don't have a way to talk about these acts of brazen violence. And what I found amazing about that story, I mean, what's really striking is the New York Times reveals this. The US government doesn't deny it. And then what we learn two, three years later is the Thursday list continued to be signed. So it's not like the story broke and they were like, oh my God, okay, we're going to stop doing this. They continue to sit down and just clinically talk about industrial murder, okay? I know this phrase has sensitivity in Germany, you know, industrial scale killing. It has sensitivity here. But this is industrial scale assassination. They, they were not killing one person at a time. They were signing entire lists. And if you ever travel to Waziristan, you know, my father's family comes from that area near the Khyber Pass. You ever travel to that area, it's interesting, okay? Because there are, the whole civilization of Waziristan is basically built on ridges. It's not a valley culture as much as a rich culture. So these villages and these ridges and then there's terrace farming and so on. And there are so many videos that the CIA has, which some get got leaked by WikiLeaks. So many videos of people, farmers walking along the ridge, just getting hit by a drone strike. Um, in the film Shadow World, uh, there's a one particular grisly scene of a guy just walking and he gets struck. What I found later talking to people in the intelligence world in the US is that they killed a lot of men over six feet tall in the region. Not, not because of um, a kill list, but because they kept thinking that's Bin Laden. So Bin Laden is extremely tall, but men in Waziristan are also very tall and also very thin. Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan, the great socialist leader of that region, was a very tall man. He was about 6'3". And he was also like Bin Laden, similar body type, quite spindly. Uh, bin Laden was extraordinarily tall for a, for a desert Arab, you know, in Saudi Arabia, people are not that tall. He was quite tall. But they targeted people for the height. Um, so there were people sitting in Las Vegas watching tall men walk around Waziristan and they just kept taking them out. There are Hollywood movies made about this and yet it doesn't come into the soul. It doesn't disgust the soul. You know, that's what I mean by the culture is not moving. Uh, you can say this a million times, but it has zero impact. That puzzles me. Uh, I keep returning to that. What's the barrier? Why is it that it's easier to call Erdogan a brutal dictator or whatever it is, or compare Erdogan to Putin, but not Erdogan to Obama, for instance? You know, why isn't our comparison go the other side of the Atlantic? We always compare this side. You know, we always say, you're a barbarian like the other barbarian. But in Washington, there are no barbarians. They are all upstanding citizens, you know? I had this very um, pleasurable uh, experience where I was reading a student paper and the student was writing about human rights issues in the US, like about something, but then she, the student was like, like human rights violations in the US about clean water. And she was from Morocco and I was like, yes, she learned something in my class, right? Um, complaining about this. And in our party, like, we have like some, like we have people that now uh, wrote articles about Christian Lindner, right, who is the finance minister, being the, one of the most dangerous people. 
which I think is wrong. We know what Christiana wants. He's one of the most open books. Like, he's not dangerous at all. Um, I find, like, obviously his ideology is dangerous, and he's an actor who acts as ideology, but everything is in line. Everything he does is in line with the narrative. Um, while I, by the way, also have a thing against Obama, I've always had, he also did like horrible things with like, there's this uh, taxes for the rich cuts he put into place permanently, which Bush could have never done, right? This is a whole thing about the supposed leftist candidate being able to be more destructive than anybody else, because he has this charismatic uh, face. Uh, and there, um, I don't know, maybe some of you are reminded of Slavoj Zizek being happy about Trump, um, because there would be um, somehow put a possibility for leftist social movements to actually uh, get up and form, form against something, while uh, somebody like Obama, um, he's like so calming, and like for those people that don't want to struggle, um, he, like, he, he gives us this peaceful, good feeling, um, and I'm a big fan of Trevor Noah. I don't know who else is of the Daily Show, uh, but I'm very upset that he's a fan of Obama. Like every time I see them in an interview together, like I, 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 I really struggle with this. Like having this really intellectual South African comedian um, being a fan of Obama, while I think Obama was one of the most dangerous men um, because he is so charismatic. Right? He uses language so well. Um, I think he like had more drone strikes than anybody else before, right? He was like really, really, uh, he was the axis of evil, uh, right? And, which is also a brilliant way, right? The savages are the axis of evil, so we are the axis of good. Like the whole narrative, right? I'm, so I wonder it's not even axis. Axis is a bad word. We are the allies. Yeah, that's what The I'm West saying. is always the allies. The axis, don't forget, is... So I wonder how do we get to do the framing, right? Like, I have this also, like, this, um, this, I marked this thing, how the U.S. became, like, the, the one that is standing for human rights and liberalism and so on. So you said, yeah, like people are waking up, nations are waking up to the struggle, and they're like, no, you're exploiting us. Um, so I'm wondering if you like have thought about like how do we, and after your answer, I'm going to give it to the audience, um, how do we change the narrative? Do you have any advice for us, like uh, us all political people and so on? How do we change, the, you call it culture, I talk, call it narrative, how do we get to be like uh, get to get this like populism? How 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 do we win at populism? I understand that as leftists, a lot of times we are like, oh, populism, something dirty, right? Which I think also the Enlightenment thinkers told us that populism is dirty because it plays into emotions and so on. But do you have any advice? How do we become more populist? How do we take this book and not not get totally depressed? But learn the lessons. I'm not saying to 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 assassinate uh, any American leaders or something. Um, let's not try to do coups and so on. Um, but how do we take these lessons and put it into action for solidarity, for global justice, and maybe some kind of revolution? Yeah. So um, I took in a deep breath because uh, there's a lot to say there. I, I actually find myself with a question like that stumbling a little bit because I generally don't like to tell people what to do. 
um, because I feel that maybe you should figure it out yourself. One second, one yeah. second, but let's take, yeah. uh, let's think of it as a recipe. So yes. you have this great recipe, for, everybody thinks this is very tasty, how do we do it? So it's more like giving us advice, don't, don't think of it, of it as a command. Yeah, although commands are okay. I mean, I think that I'm also distressed by this disavowal of populism because I think that somebody else is framing. In the tradition of the left from which I come, we are very keen on the mass line. You know, where are the people? What are the people thinking? Um, so, for instance, take the Western way in which they have really absconded with ideas like human rights. They've stolen it from the world and corrupted it. Uh, words like human rights, you know, dignity even has been corrupted by them. Um, the very fact that the CIA can do an ad saying that, you know, uh, I'm gay and I'm in the CIA, I'm an immigrant, I'm in the CIA, this was an ad they released, you know. I mean, what the hell is that, man? Uh, there's a US helicopter uh, battalion, which is a gay helicopter battalion, which did a, a photo shoot where they painted the bomb with the rainbow color. I mean, you know, when the bomb lands on, on Iraq or whatever, it's going to be the same bomb. It's not a happy bomb or a, a, you know, or a human rights bomb or whatever. It's still a same nasty bomb. There's a way in which they've taken these things from us. And we have a hard time taking the language back. So if you look at the term human rights, um, you know, it's, it's bizarre because here is the continent of Africa, 54 countries. During the pandemic, a lot of Western bondholders, particularly in Western Europe, refused to downgrade or give a haircut to loans taken by African countries. So 27 of 54 African countries during the pandemic paid more in debt servicing payments to European banks than they did on their healthcare. Forget the vaccine apartheid and all that. that. There was some conversation about vaccine apartheid and so on. There was no conversation about the bondholders taking their debt servicing during the pandemic. Almost no conversation. So human rights then becomes this abstraction which is meaningless to people on the ground. You know, because what people require is debt relief. The number one problem in the South today is the question of Western banks and the suffocation that they are doing on these countries. But movements in the North are just not foregrounding the issue of the debt crisis. And partly because of the austerity being done in their own countries. Like it would be strange for a left political project in Europe to say, let's forgive the debts in, you know, in, in, in Zambia. Let's just give a complete debt relief. Do you um, like that our party does have yes, that program? <laughs> I know that. That's why I'm raising it. Because at the same time, the government is doing austerity against its own people. You know, how to balance and create new ways of thinking about human rights? Like, how can a person have human rights if they can't have sovereignty over their income? You know, where their currency has no sovereignty and so on. So we have to take some of these concepts and deepen them and challenge our own uh, neoliberal austerity governments and politicians, they need to be challenged. They have had an open lane to say whatever the hell they want for years. And the other thing is that a lot of governments of the right in the south, including in Turkey, they are not going to be out there challenging um, the West on human rights. Uh, because what they are basically doing is Western human rights are bogus, which is true. And so we reject it all and we'll do whatever the hell we want. Same thing you see in Hungary. 
the government says, you know, Western European human rights are bogus. We junk it all. We'll do our own thing. We have our own Hungarian tradition. You know who sells weapons still to Hungary, like a lot last year? Probably Germany. Yeah. <laughs> Sweden is a great example of this hypocrisy. Okay, a great example of this hypocrisy. Sweden is one of the world's biggest exporters of battlefield guns. Bofors company sells howitzers and so on. And then these countries go out there and give Nobel prizes for peace to Obama and whatever. I mean, the, the, the way we have to take back from them our traditions. I, I don't want to say that human rights is a garbage term. I want that to have meaning for our Marxist project. Because we believe in the actual dignity of people, not this bogus CIA dignity, you know, like having ads to say to people, we are so happy, you know, we can have a gay CIA agent or a, or a Dominican migrant CIA agent or something like that. That's not human rights. We have to fight to, in a way, delegitimize that, but not to junk the actual content of human rights. And I think for the left, this is a very difficult dance, my friends. It's really hard because there's a tendency to go in the other direction and say it's the whole whole thing is garbage, you know, because they have lied to us so much, imposed suffering on us on the basis of those kind of enlightenment ideas or whatever it might be, those traditions. So I think for us to be forthright, I mean, to challenge these politicians, not allow them to have an open lane. Um, you know, like when Biden comes to Germany, for instance, and they talk about how they're all going to stand for human rights, you know, against Russia, Ukraine is like the front line and so on. At the same time, they are out there trying to provoke a war against China. Okay, now why are they provoking a war against China? It's got nothing to do with human rights. As long as China was providing cheap labor, high quality cheap labor for Western corporations, they were happy with China. The moment China said, we're going to produce our own stuff with our own companies, our own brands like Huawei and so on, the West said this is an existential threat to Western companies. So we are going to provoke a war against you. So how is it, again, that we allow these people to talk in the name of human rights when this is their history? You know, Biden, for instance, was sitting there in a congressional uh, hearing for the nomination of Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court. And he was so sexist to uh, Anita Hill, who was uh, giving a, a, um, a testimony for sexual harassment by class. Biden was so sexist against Anita Hill. And today people say, well, you know, he's a great American. America is such a great country. They are so for, you know, the, against patriarchy and so on. How do we let them get away with it? We should never let them get away with this anymore. Got to stand up to make a real culture, not a culture of hypocrisy. I think like one last note from me before I give it to um, that microphone, please. Um, so I was, when I was 17, I went to the US for a year and my communist father probably died inside, but he still had financing. And so I went to the US and I was like really amazed. Like, I mean, I obviously I got indoctrinated by television because why would I want to go to the US, right? Um, and I was amazed how there's like people in trailer parks next to me saying like, oh, we are the richest country in the world. Um, so I think, and this is what like between my late father and me, like late when he was older, he actually sometimes listened to me because he felt like now I have to say something or I can say something. And the thing is also the American population isn't happy either, right? Um, they have the human right to die from treatable disease or go in deaths, right? If you don't have enough insulin, like you can't even pay for insulin. Um, so I feel like we should, not forget this, 
um, how the American public itself is like deceived and then remember like of Hobson and Lenin, right? How you point at the other and be like, oh, the other is worse off. Uh, you are better off than a chieftain somewhere in America. So be happy with whatever wages we give you, although you die in horrible conditions and so on. The other side of the world is worse and we are the strongest and best and oh, we are American and so on. Um, so I think we, um, and I'm always wondering, and you are part of it, like we can get to this, again later, uh, of the Democratic Socialists of America. Um, Me? No. No, no, it says, oh, it says this in, like, you're supporting them or something? No. It says it on Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> Wikipedia. Ne Wikipedia is no, Wikipedia is an interesting source because many years ago there was a debate took place on my Wikipedia page about Israel. People kept changing things and so on. Democracy is peculiar. So currently you are, you are somehow oh, of the American okay. Democratic That's Socialist. interesting. And I think we should keep that in mind. My own political party will expel me if that's the case. So I'll have to yeah, check I, I, on I, that. I was also like uh, surprised to, 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 to like, uh, I was like, we I'm can't not, say, I was we I'm seriously worried I'll be expelled. <laughs> you better get this changed quickly. Thank you for this Please. wonderful yeah. discussion. Thank you. Thank you.